Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. One thing in building that we're all very familiar with, whether you're a builder or not, is understanding that as, as goes the foundation, so goes the rest of the building. If you're going to build a structure, you want to build it on top of something solid. I found that even in jobs where I don't put the foundation in, for example, when I was back in Seattle, Washington, I framed house after house after house. I didn't do any foundations out there at all. But I came in right after the foundation crew was done. And the first thing that I always did was check the foundation. And so we would actually go and snap lines on top of the foundation so that if they're off a little bit and square, that we would put our building squarely on top of the foundation. Even if we had to overhang it a little bit here or there, adjust it one way or the other. Obviously, you can't adjust the concrete, but we can adjust the building that sits on top of it. Even just to snap the lines, we'd always do one thing first. Where's the first line we're going to snap? Because that line determines every other line that you snap on the building. And sometimes as a building had a lot of jogs in and out, it could be difficult and you'd spend a little bit of time saying, all right, well, if we start with that one, then we could get these ones easily off of it. And we'd find the the spot that we could get most of the rest of the measurements off of easily. And sometimes that meant stringing a line beyond where the foundation would end. And then that line would be the foundation for all the rest of our measurements on that building. You know what? I find the same thing if I'm rebuilding. The other day I went to install a door and everything underneath the door was rotten. And you know what you do? You tear it apart till it's not rotten anymore. You just keep pulling things out and you get down to that thing. You've got to find the thing that's solid. You've got to find the thing that's, that you can anchor into, that you can build off of and go from there. It's the same way in our lives. Sometimes we are in our lives where you can be shaken a little bit. We just looked at that at the end of chapter 12 last week. He talked about those things that can be shaken and then those things that cannot be shaken within our lives. And sometimes our life gets shaken. And what do we need to do? We need to start stripping it back. Stripping it back till we find that thing that's solid. Till we find that what is unshakable in our life, which is our relationship with Jesus Christ. And then build it from there. Or rebuild it from there. But it's all about that foundation. As we come to chapter 13, we're making a switch here a little bit. The New Testament order of things starts off with a foundation. It starts off with doctrine. What do we believe? Who is God? What do we know Him to be like? What is our position in Him? The first part of just about every epistle within the New Testament is doctrinal understanding. It's foundational. And then it makes a switch. Like in the book of Ephesians, for example. It tells you who you are in Christ foundationally for three chapters. And then it turns around and says, now, because of that, this is how you should live. That's exactly what he's doing in Hebrews. But Hebrews has a little bit of it mixed in as we go through with those warning passages. But when he gets right down to it, when we hit chapter 13, all the foundation is laid about who Christ is and how he's superior and needs to be superior in our life. When chapter 13 hits, he just has all these principles that because of who Christ is in our life, we should live this way and we should live this way. We should do all this. We have the doctrine, the foundational doctrines. Now we have the duty. How do we perform that? We have the foundational position in Christ. Who are we? Now we have the practice. How do we practice that in our lives? It's just like John MacArthur said. He made this statement in regards to this passage. He said, true faith demands true living. And as we've been looking through the book of Hebrews, we've been looking at true faith. 
Now, how do we be faithful? That's what chapter 13 is about. It starts with that ultimate Christian virtue, which is love. Let brotherly love continue. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. They were evaluating themselves by several different standards. The Apostle Paul kind of narrowed it down. He says, why don't we look at it this way? These three things abide. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. It's like with Jesus. Trying to trip Jesus up. They ask him, which is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your, all your strength. But he didn't stop there. They asked him for the greatest commandment. He gave them the top two. He says, and the next one's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love. Love is like a supreme among the Christian virtues. And that's what he, the first thing in the book of Hebrews that he calls us back to is this brotherly love. It's the word Philadelphia, which comes from the Greek language. It's the Greek phileo, which is love, and adelphos, which is brother, or literally from the same womb. And so he says, you need to allow this, let this brotherly love continue. I'd like to point out three aspects of living a life of love. The first one is sustaining love. I find it interesting the way that he phrases it in here. He says, let brotherly love continue. He doesn't tell them to manufacture it, to come up with it. He says, let it, just let it continue. Throughout Scripture, we see it. In fact, if we look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, it says, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When, when, when we put our faith in Christ, we're responding to the love of God that He has poured out upon us through the giving of His Son. So when we respond to the love of God, we receive the love of God into us and it makes us more loving people. It's just a natural. I even, I even remember what it felt like the first time. I remember when I put my faith in Christ and I received Him. I just had this overwhelming almost feel of love. And like all of a sudden I belong. I'm accepted. I'm loved. I'm, I, I'm cared for by my Heavenly Father. And you know what it made you want to do? It made you want to see other people experience the same thing. And it made you want to reach out to other people in, in loving ways and to see the value and the importance of other people. It's kind of a natural response for a Christian to love because it's, it's just like, like we sang this morning. We sang, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the sons of God. And the very next song, this is my commandment that you love one another. There's a natural desire, push to love other people because of the love that we experience of God. In the book of Galatians in chapter 5, it lists love as being one of the fruits of the Spirit. In other words, it's not something that we manufacture. It's not something that we create within ourselves. It's something that we allow the Holy Spirit to bear fruit in our lives. And so it's like, as it says here, let, let brotherly love continue. It's already there from, from what we experience of God. The problem is we can get in the way. We can get self-oriented and we can let brotherly love die out. And he's saying, look, let it continue. Let it flourish. Let it grow in the way that you respond to one another and think of one another. I like in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, it says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. He said, I don't even need to write to you about brotherly love because you're just, you're just doing it. God has just produced it in you. You just have it naturally. And you know what? If we give ourselves to what we have naturally, if we give ourselves, yield ourselves to that Holy Spirit's work in our life, yield ourselves to the will of God in our life, then God just works those things in us. 
so that we naturally care for other people. I think of the book of Philippians. The Apostle Paul would speak of Timothy, and he says, I don't have anybody quite like Timothy. Timothy just naturally cares for other people. That's part of our experience as believers in Christ, is that we see the love of God working in our hearts. In fact, so much so that it's used as a test for our faith. First John is about having assurance of faith, that I know I'm part of God's family. As we go through the book of First John, he gives you a bunch of tests. He says, look, if you say that you love God, but you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. That's a hypocrisy. But you know what? One of his tests that he spends maybe even the most time on is love. He says, if you say you love God, but you hate your brother, you're a liar and you don't do the truth. But he says, it's actually the love that we see that God puts into our hearts for other people that demonstrates the reality of our faith. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14, it says, We know that we have passed out of death and into life. So what is that talking about? That's talking about our salvation. That we're no longer dead in our trespasses and sins, but we're alive in Christ. He says, Because we love the brothers, whoever does not love abides in death. How do we know? You know, a lot of times we spend time on the external ways that we know that we've passed from death to life. We know because the Bible says that, we're true, that if you trust in Jesus, we know because Jesus died on the cross for me that He rose again from the dead. There were eyewitnesses that backed that up. There is a change in life in those eyewitnesses that we know that they were telling the truth. There's so many different things that we can point to, external things that prove that Jesus Christ did what, he, what the Bible says that He did, and He accomplished for us what He said He would accomplish, which is our salvation. But this one in First John, He tells us to look within. Do you see the love of God for other people expressed in your heart? Do you find that compassion for other people that God has for them? Do you find that kind of compassion in your heart for those people? He says, if you can't find that, you're still in death. But if you find that, that is such strong evidence for the reality of God in your life. When somebody asks me, how do you know that you're a Christian? There's certain external things that I can give them that are evidences for why I know. But there's just a knowledge inside. There's a working of God within my heart that I can't account for in any other way. And that's that, that love. That's why he's able to say, let brotherly love continue. Because if these people are genuine believers, it's there. Because God puts it there. If God doesn't put it there, then it means we're outside of his salvation. We're outside of that family relationship with him. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, it says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Now there's a couple, points that are, a couple things that are going to jump out at us here. Now notice he starts off here and he talks about the purifying of our souls. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. So he's talking about the fact that they've been cleansed now because of their faith in Jesus Christ. They've obeyed the gospel call to trust in Jesus Christ. And he says that that happens for a sincere brotherly love. That, that then what happens because of that trusting in Jesus Christ is we have this sincere, genuine love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, we feel a part of that family. I remember when I first became a Christian, and I had to drive by the church every day on my way to work, and every day on my way home. And I can remember driving down the road and driving by my church, and because that's the place that I trusted in Christ, and that's the place that that my pastor was worked, and that's the place that I met with my other brothers and sisters in Christ. I remember thinking, you know what? We got a lot of property at that church. It would be so awesome if everybody could just build their house here. And we could just be here like all the time. It was just 
Now, I'm glad we didn't because that's kind of a commune that God hasn't really called us to. We need to be outreaching the world too with that. But, but you know what? That, that compassion or that connection that I now had to these people that were strangers to me six months earlier, that's what God produces within our, within our hearts. But then he says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So we're not neutral in this. Even though God creates it within us, we respond to it. God puts it there, we respond. And that's what he's telling him to do. Respond. And then he says in verse 23, since you have been born again, why are we able to do this? Why, why do we have this love of God flowing in us? Because of that born again experience. We've been made new through faith in Jesus Christ. We've been born again to this living hope, born again to this love of God that is operating within us now. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. He, he kind of goes a, kind of somewhat along the same lines in Second Peter. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So God has given us everything that we need to live a life, that life of godliness for Him. We have it. But then he tells us where we have it. Through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence. So we find what we need to live this godly life for God. We find it in knowledge of God. And where do we find the knowledge of God? In the Word of God. He says, thereby He's given us His great and precious promises. So that through those we can participate in the divine nature. To put it in a nutshell, we have everything that we need to live for God. He gives it to us through our knowledge of Him, which we find in the Word of God. As we take the Word of God and apply it to our lives, we tap into His divine power, which gives us both the desire and the ability to live that life of godliness for Him. But then he goes into this little list. Therefore, I want you to add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. And he lists all these different things. And what do we find in those lists? Right back to where we're at again, brotherly love. You see, it's God working in us. He instills that brotherly love in us. But we have to respond. We need to, we need to allow it to flourish. We need to yield to it. We need to allow it to grow and have more of a control in our lives. In the book of Philippians, chapter 2, he says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy. So he's calling on them to say, look, are you experiencing these things in Christ? And the answer, obviously, any genuine Christian, yes. Yes, I'm experiencing those in Christ. I feel the love. I feel encouragement. I feel, I feel this unity. I feel all these things. He said, so that being the basis, if that's the case, if that's your experience, then he says, complete my, my joy of being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. If I'm experiencing the love and encouragement of Christ, and Ron is experiencing the love and encouragement of Christ, then we ought to be on the same page. Don't do anything, he'll tell them right after that, out of selfish ambition or vain deceit, but rather in humility, esteem others better than yourself. See them as more significant than yourself. And then he'll give the example of Christ. He'll say, look at Christ. He was, he was God. But he didn't put himself first. He put us first. He saw our needs as more significant than his own. He didn't cling to heaven and hold on to it. He rather emptied himself for us and came down here to walk in our shoes. And then being found as fashion a man, he humbled himself further and he became a servant. While he was here, he said, I didn't come to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. 
And then he humbled himself further than that. And the biggest need that we had is for eternal life. And so he paid our death penalty with his own life. And he submitted himself to death. And he went a step further than that. Even death on the cross, which was the most humiliating death you could experience. The whole design of it was to humiliate you. Let this mind, which was in Christ, be also in you. Now, after going through all of that, saying, look, is this your experience? you have encouragement, love, everything from Christ? then you need to cooperate with that and be like-minded with other people and put other people's needs above your own, just like Christ put yours. But then notice, as you get farther into the passage, in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. You know why that's there? It just kind of wraps up the whole thing into one nice package. Because at the beginning, he warns them, look, look at what you've received in Christ. Don't, don't operate out of selfish ambition. He ends it with, do all things without grumbling or disputing. You see, the fact of the matter exists that we have two directions we can go. We can be self-centered in our living. And what does that lend to? Selfish ambitions and grumbling and disputing to make sure we get our way. Or we can operate out of brotherly love where we put other people's needs above our own. We see them as more significant than ourselves. We esteem them higher than we esteem ourselves. And we fulfill that command toward brotherly love. There's really only the two choices. Let brotherly love continue. You know what the encouraging thing is? If we look back in chapter 6 of the book of Hebrews in verse 10, they were already doing it. He says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. He's, he's able to look at them and say, look, you were doing it. You were reaching out to people in prison. You were helping people. You were loving your brothers. And you still are to an extent, but they're in danger of walking away from that. They're in danger of drifting from that. He said, look, you, you need to focus on this. You need to let this continue in your life. You need to respond in the right way. So there's a sustaining love. Love isn't created by us. It's put within us by God. But we need to respond to it. We need to sustain it. But not only that, but we also see that he commands a love of strangers. Love of strangers. He says, be, be hospitable. Now in those days, the hospitality was a major thing. Because back in that culture, and that time, and that place, uh, traveling around wasn't so easy. You didn't uh, have rewards points for all the hotels that got you free night stays and that kind of stuff. If you had an inn in the area, they were often expensive and had a poor reputation. And so they weren't necessarily the best place to be. And so when people would travel back in those times, often they would rely on the help of strangers. People that as they came into a town, people would recognize that they were a stranger and they would offer to put them up. And they would stay in their homes. And so that was a big deal. In fact, so much so part of the Christian creed involved this hospitality. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, when it's looking at qualifications for a pastor, it says, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. And able to teach. If you look at the list given to Titus, you find the same thing in his list also. We find the same thing with widows. You know, one of the problems that the early church had was widows that had been abandoned by their family, and so the church needed to help take care of them. In First Timothy chapter 5, it gives you the qualifications for a widow to be considered deserving of help in that way. In chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, it says, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. And having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. 
hospitality, being welcoming to strangers, reaching out to people, caring for people that you don't even know. That's uncomfortable sometimes, isn't it? I remember one time uh, we, we went to church on a Sunday uh, evening, and this couple came in and, and went to church that night, and afterwards we got talking to them and everything, and it was a Christian couple from Texas, I think they were. They were in this driving this little camper van, and we, and we got talking to them, and the speaker that we had heard was from a church that they were at and that kind of stuff, and starting to get dark a little bit, and it's a summer evening, and I said, well, where are you guys staying? How long are you in the area? And they said, oh, I don't know. We're just going to go down the road and find a KOA camp somewhere or something like that. We'll just stay there. And I said, well, you don't have to do that. Come on over to our house. We have an extra room at our house. You can come stay at our house. Spend the night there. Take off whenever you want tomorrow. i got to get up and go to work, but whenever you're ready, go ahead. And so they did. They took us up on that, and they came to our house, and I pulled out the barbecue, and we put some burgers or something on there and started to grill and started talking about stuff. This guy's a real sports fan. And uh, back in those days, I was living in Seattle, so I was a Seahawks fan. But I remember talking to him about those kind of things. And you know what? The more that I talked to him, I found out they didn't have a home in Texas. They weren't on vacation. This is how they lived. And he would go into a town where there was a major sporting event, and he would find out what's, and, and he would go and buy up a bunch of tickets for that, and then he would scalp the tickets. And that's how he'd make his living. Now, he did it legally. There's scalping laws in every city, and he would find out what those laws are, but he would make his living on selling these tickets. Well, what he'd do is he'd go sell enough tickets to where he had enough money to get them by for about two more weeks, and then he'd quit and just kind of travel around, go to the game, enjoy life. And then we got talking to his wife, and she's like, well, I'd like to settle down and have kids. And his response was, well, she knew what it was going to be like when she married me. Uh, they're just living in this little van with a bunch of canned, boxes of canned food and kind of traveling around and living like that. And all of a sudden, I'm not feeling quite as comfortable about having them spend the night <laughs> in my house with my wife. And I had one son at the time, he was a little baby, and I'm starting to get a little bit nervous. It was ill-founded, but their lifestyle kind of upset my apple cart a little bit. That's not how I approached life. And so I was having a little trouble with that. I remember Lisa and I went into bed that night and we're laying in there. What do we do? Well, you know what we did? We prayed and we went to sleep. And then we prayed and we went to sleep. And then we prayed and we went to sleep. <laughs> and it, was, it was a little bit unnerving. But you know what? Everything was fine. And the next, the next morning they, they left. You see, that's not a comfortable part of our culture. It was theirs. They, they did that kind of thing. You, you see people going into places in the Bible where you read about somebody going into the city gate and somebody else coming and saying, well, you can't spend the night out here. Come to my house. And you think they've never met that person before. Why would they do that? It was a very big part of their culture. You know, up here we're kind of in the sticks a little bit, except a little bit part. And so we don't even have all that much occasion where people come up and ask us for money for a dinner or something. And even those can be uncomfortable because you know, don't always know that it's the best thing to hand somebody money for a dinner when they think they might be struggling with an addiction. It may not be the most loving thing to do. So there's a wrestling match. And, you know, I've wrestled with it on occasion. We do get somebody come through Little Fork and they'll call and they'll, and they'll, they'll ask me for help and they'll say, we are traveling here and, and we're out of gas and, and we can't get there and they've always got some, you know, I'm part of this church somewhere and that kind of thing in the story. And the stories are often suspicious. I remember one lady traveling with her daughter and she says, I'm on my way from North Dakota to Philadelphia and we got to get there because of this medical procedure and we're about out of gas. And I'm like, this is not exactly on the way from where you left to where you were going, but okay. And there's been times, and, and Marsha always works really good with us. I call her and I say, look, can we buy them a hotel room? Just We'll pay it, the church pay it, but you put them up. 
She'll put them up. And there's been times, actually, where there's been drug use in a room that we rented, unfortunately, for somebody else. And I never just hand out money, but I'll take them and fill their tank at the gas station or make an arrangement back when Marsha's Cafe was open to feed them or something like that. Make arrangements like that so that you know that you're helping people. And you know what? I, I would have to say this, that probably most of the times that I've helped somebody, it hasn't been a legitimate story that I found out later. But you know what? That's not really my job. I've met people that feel like, and other pastors that feel like it's their job to catch them in a lie. It's not my job to catch them in a lie. It's not my job to turn them away. No, I don't want the money that I give them going to narcotics or alcohol or things like that. I don't want that. And I can safeguard some of those things. But you know what? In the end, if they took advantage of me and I helped them out, that's okay. We need to have the desire to help strangers. The desire to help. A love for people that we haven't that we don't have any connection to, we may not have even met. I'm not saying you need to hand out money to every person that sticks their hand out. There's that uncomfortable thing that we all have to wade through, but you know what? We do need that compassion with inside of us. He says, exercise a brotherly love that extends beyond your brothers. Well, lastly, it's a sympathetic love. Because he talks about visiting people in prisons as if you were in, in jailed with them. He talks about helping people that are afflicted, as though you're, because you're still in the body. And I think that what he's talking about there, I think the word body, I think he's pointing to the body of Christ. That we're one with these people. We're part of the body of Christ, just as they are. And I don't think that in this passage, I don't think it's necessarily pointing toward like a jail ministry or, or something like that, or a hospital, building hospitals. Although those things are justifiable from other passages within the Bible and, and needed. And even by extension, this passage, what this one is talking about is brotherly love, the, the love of your fellow Christians that are going through these things. Because you remember back in chapter 10, they are going through these things. Members of their church, friends, even family members are being arrested. They are being mistreated. They are, and he's saying, look, don't forget those people. When they get locked in jail, don't, don't forget about them. Don't pass them by. You know what? That was an important part of early Christians' ministry and message. In the Apostolic Confession, it says, If any Christian is condemned for Christ's sake to the minds by the ungodly, do not overlook him. But from the proceeds of your toil and sweat, send him something to support himself and to reward the soldier of Christ. All money accruing from honest labor do you appoint and apportion to the redeeming of the saints, ransoming thereby slaves and captives and prisoners, people who are sore abused and condemned by tyrants. They lived up to that confession. These early Christian did, because even as we look at people that were against them, as I think of a pagan orator named Aristodes, he says, if they hear that any one of their number is in prison or in distress for the sake of their Christ's name, they all render aid in his necessity, and if they can, they redeem him to set him free. There's even accounts in history of Christians, one Christian selling himself into slavery to set somebody else free out of their prisons. That's quite a love. And you know what? When we look around this world, even look within our own country, where we're not persecuted that heavily, what do we see? We see evidences of Christian love all over our nation. Just about every time you drive by a hospital, it's a Methodist hospital or a Baptist hospital or a, or a, or a Lutheran hospital or it's St. Mary's or it's St. Luke's or it's St. somebody or other. It's because that's what happened. In the earlier parts of our country, Christians said we need to care for our sick and dying, even those ones that we don't know. And they built hospitals to take care of those kinds of things. 
You know, we need to have that sympathetic love that feels the pain that other people are going in, that steps in. He says, help those people in prison as if you are in prison with them. Don't forget them. Work hard to provide for them. Living in love is not just a warm, fuzzy, a feel-good emotion. Living in love is very practical. As we live in that love, we need that sustaining love. We need to love strangers, have a predisposition toward people that is positive before we even know them. And we need to have that sympathetic love that comes along people, side of people that are struggling and says, where can I help?